welcome once again to On Connection, the podcast where we bring together three generations to talk about connection and conversation in the world of work. At Conversant, we have a phrase we use quite a lot, which is the conversations are the work. So we thought it would be worthwhile to spend some time unpacking what that means to us and why we think it's such a critical mindset, not just for leaders, but for anyone that wants to contribute meaningfully to the work they do with others. The word conversation derives from two Latin roots, calm meaning together and versare meaning to turn. So in a literal sense, the the word means to turn about or to turn about with. An even older and now obsolete definition of the word was to live, to dwell, or to inhabit. It was used to refer to a behavior or a way of life, the manner in which we conduct ourselves in the world. So even by looking at the historical use of the word, it's clear that conversation is integral to human life. It's also about two or more things, people, ideas, perspectives, coming together and creating something new. Most people will also report that you can't really get work done without it. Work for the majority of us means collaborating in some form or fashion with other human beings. In this case, we're including all forms of conversation from a live exchange all the way to email or chat. Texting also falls under that domain. So we need one another to accomplish what we're committed to doing. And by being aware of the quality of those points of connection, we have a huge opportunity in our work lives. If you're new to Conversant and to our work, then this episode is the perfect summary of what we believe and why we exist. You'll hear Robin, our CEO, talk about the design of conversation, that we can be students of that design and develop our conversational skills the same way that an athlete works to get better at their sport. Mickey mentions that this isn't just a bonus thing to be great at, it's a leader's job. This is a leader's responsibility to bring people together and host conversations that are designed for alignment, for action, for adjustment, to create the conditions under which people can be smarter and more effective together. We also know that if you take this on, if you really practice getting great at listening and causing valuable conversations, it means that you'll accomplish more with less time, money, and stress. And... By the way, you'll feel more energized and excited about work than you'll feel drained, frustrated, or overwhelmed. You can count me in. And that might sound too good to be true. I get it. But I can say from my personal experience that this is a true life hack. It's an area of both our work lives and our personal lives that we habitually overlook. But it's our most common meeting place. Conversation is our means of coming together, of sharing our ideas, of making our thoughts real and actionable. It's our medium for accountability, for appreciation, and it's where we learn about others, about ourselves, and about the world. So I hope this episode inspires you to pay closer attention to the impact of your conversations and the quality of your listening on the people around you, on your work, and on your daily lives. Today, I am joined in person in our office in Boulder, Colorado by Robin Anselmi and Mickey Connolly. Thank you for being here and so exciting to get to be together. Yes, it is. And it's exciting because we're actually honoring the age of everyone here in this multi-generational look, including me, the oldest. Uh I feel so honored. I was just having a moment. You know, the last time that the three of us sat and did one of these recordings was Mar- March 13th of 2020, immediately before the pandemic. We didn't, we weren't doing a podcast, but it was our very first uh, on connection, connect, community gather, no community connection, right? Video, the connection video. diary. Connection it, was what, diary. it was what inspired the connection diaries videos, right. which if you haven't seen those, you can find them on our website, right. but they're little short snippets that we started doing at the beginning of the pandemic to stay in touch with people. And I, you were here in Boulder. I was the week before lockdown started in the United States. And we had the idea because everything was starting to unravel. Exactly right. We had no clue it was going to turn into what it was three days later. But we had you both sit right out here right in out the here. front and That's recorded right. you giving words of wisdom about leaders and staying connected, connected. during right. crisis. And right. here we are and over a year later. I know. So and that was, you know, an early precursor to this podcast. And in, in a lot of ways, we learned so much from that and it's grown to this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. 
crazy what a year and a half will do. It is crazy. Well, and speaking of conversations, the topic today that we wanted to explore is around something that we've come to say quite regularly, um, which is the conversations are the work. What do we mean by that? Which one of you would like to start? Well, you know, I started saying it very regularly with a client about a year, year and a half ago. We said we'd said it sort of periodically before that, but it came up really routinely with a client of ours that is a manufacturing um, organization who we would have these meetings that were really in depth. And at the end, people would get a little angsty around, well, like, is there something else that needs to happen? Right. Is there something else that need that we need to go like, did we do everything we needed to do? And we, they were really in the midst of a culture change. We were working a lot on having people have a mutual understanding of where they were going and what they were trying to create together. And we had to say to them repeatedly, these conversations are the work of culture change, right? That you, if you really want to be changing an organization, you're changing the everyday conversations that you're in and you had them sort of all relax and go, Oh, okay. Like I, it's, this is exactly where we need to be. So for me, it really is around if you're trying to affect change in an organization, the only way I know to do that is in conversations with, with each other. Right. You know, we've, for 30 some years um, really stood in that the nature of being human is always including conversation in all of its forms, whether it's email, voicemail, in person, like we are right here, any way that we exchange any kind of information or emotion we put that in the domain of conversation. And when we say the conversations are the work, we don't mean talking about the work is the work. In fact, we think talking about is a weak form of conversation because that's like conversation as a spectator sport rather than you're on the field of play, making things move. And so, Emrose, my answer to how come we can say conversations are the work with such conviction as we say, there's conversations that cause alignment. And the job of a leader is to bring people together to achieve something that they couldn't achieve on their own. So you think conversations that actually end up in people being aligned matter? Yeah, we say they matter a lot. And then we say there's conversations for action. So the conversations that clarify who's doing what, where, when, make sure people are connected to it, owning it, are self-supervising generators of the action and the conversations that have us learn from the action and adjust. So we think that that's all anybody is doing all the time anyway at the level of leaders and groups. They're aligning, they're acting, they're adjusting, and we know there are conversations that help that and hurt that. So we think the conversations are the work. Mm. Well, I think the other thing, and we say this often when we're in a room with people, but it's worth doing even here now, is just to pause and think for a moment about the week that you are either starting or ending. What percentage of your day or your week at work has been spent in some form of conversation? And that could be email. So email is an asynchronous conversation or text, which is a, can be asynchronous conversation, could be live conversation. And when around the world, when we ask people that question, the answer reliably is somewhere north of 75%, that people are spending at least 75% of their work time in some form of conversation. So if we just look at it in terms of the, how do we spend our time at our work? It is in conversation. Mm. So if we really want to get better at the work and actually make the work more effective, more joyful have more results, we've got to bring that to those conversations. Mm. Well, and one of the other reasons this felt timely is because there's a lot of conversation right now um, about how much extra time people are spending in connecting, quote unquote, about work um, virtually, especially over the last year, and that there's reported um, increases in how much time people are working at all, um, later evenings working and things like that, and an increase in check-ins. 
And a lot of those can be the kinds of conversations that turn into the complaining afterwards that probably could have been an email or whatever form of that it is. But with all that being in the conversation publicly right now about business and how we, how we stay productive in the world as it is right now, uh, I think it's important that we make this distinction about it's not just start cutting down on the number of conversations that you're in because they don't seem like they're helping. It's maybe look, take a look at how you could improve the value of the conversations that you're in. And that's what we have a perspective on. The costs of people not owning that the conversations are the work is they don't take them seriously enough to get good at it. Right. So we have meetings that produce anxiety, frustration, annoyance, and grief of all kinds. And we think that was conversation. No, whatever that was, was some misguided, poorly designed, thoughtless attempt to throw people together and hope that something great happens, like you would throw a bunch of parts together and hope a car drives off. (laughs) Well, I think it's People, because people don't treat conversations like they are the work, Mm. they treat conversations like I'm going to open my mouth, words are going to fall out, and I'm going to hope for the best. Right. As opposed to actually understanding there is a design to conversations that produce more, produce more joy, produce more results, alleviate stress, alleviate frustration. But it actually takes being thoughtful about those conversations. You can't just walk in and open your mouth and hope for the best. You really Mm -hmm. cannot, right? You actually have to think about what's the most essential thing I'm trying to communicate? What do I really need input on? What am I trying to move forward in this conversation? And the move forward could be the relationship. So it could be I'm trying to actually enhance the connection I have with this particular person on my team and ensure that they feel cared for and supported in the work that they're trying to do. That's That conversation has one kind of design. We were in a conversation yesterday really planning for the future of a particular uh, program. For those of you who know us, Credibility, Influence, and Impact, we were talking about the future design of that. That was more of a brainstorming, really trying to get aligned on what do we see as the future for that. That had a very different design to to the conversation. Conversations that have decisions in them or that where you're trying to align action, those are all going to have slightly different feels to them. We were in another meeting this week that was all about adjustment. What have we learned over the course of the year? What do we want to take going forward? But you have to be thoughtful about what am I actually trying to accomplish here? And I don't think people give enough thought to that. I think Mm -hmm. they, they have a meeting on their calendar. They walk in, they sit down, they open their mouth, they check off the things on the agenda, walk out, and then wonder why people are annoyed, frustrated, and having to do more work later. Right. Well, we also had um, one of our colleagues that we love and respect, um, Ev, she brought up when we were discussing this, this phrase, the conversations are the work and how often we use that with clients and publicly and how it does, we think encapsulate at least a lot of who we are as a company and our approach to the world of business and leadership. And she had us think a little bit harder about, well, that, that connotation of the word work, how does that make somebody feel? It kind of feels heavier um, hard. And then we were talking about it afterwards, Robin and myself, and we don't, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Cause we're not trying to lie here and say that this is, we have the easy button for anybody. It's actually, you do have to put in the work to get great mm-hmm. at hosting and showing up to the kinds of conversations that are going to alleviate stress and frustration and increase value and productivity. If we can just have more and more people appreciate that conversation is something you can get better at every day, every week, every month, every year. It is an area of potential mastery. That in itself would change things. Uh, I've been asking people for some time, how many of you think you're a better listener this year than you were last year? And you could see people in the room, you see heads tilt like a dog, you know, that goes, uh, what were you just saying my name? And I'll ask people what just came up for you. And then people will say things like, well, how do you know if you're better this year or last year? And I'll say, that is a great point. 
that we just treat it like listening is good or bad. In fact, I remember some years ago, we were working on the design of a program for a client and one of the internal organizational development consultants said, well, we need an assessment that proves that people are better at listening at the end of this. And this person showed me some questions and I said, okay, I love your questions and the evidence of our effectiveness is they will report being worse. And she said, what? <laughs> How could that be true? I said, because most people come in and think I'm a good listener. Now, I know some people that are really bad at that, but I'm pretty good. But when we actually get them an experience and they see the real design of listening, and what do you actually focus on? And how do you measure whether or not you listened well? People at the end almost always tell us, I thought I was good and I'm actually lousy and eager to get better. So the evidence of success was illuminating. There is a design and I'm not very good at it, but I could be. Mm. And I think that's part of what it's exciting to do in anything. Mm -hmm. I, you know, think of any sport that anybody here has really enjoyed. And you get enamored with it in the beginning. And then somebody begins to show you what's possible. And you live in the gap, as I have in a variety of sports, yeah. <laughs> between my current now fully illuminated incompetence. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> humbling. <laughs> and what's possible. And a really great coach shows you, okay, and what's close enough to you that you could do that and get better. And then you enjoy the next time you play or the next time you go out. Well, what if part of the game of leadership is being able to be great at conversations that align people, that coordinate and assure valuable action, that have people learn and grow so their best day is never behind them? I just think treating conversations at the work does allow us to play at the overlap of what is profound for people and what is practical for people. Mm -hmm. So that's for me why it's worth taking it on. Well, and then, then similarly in that analogy, by growing that muscle or that skill set, you're capable of achieving a different level of accomplishment. You know, you can play in a whole new environment with different players and keep upping your game. Well, that's why I love with clients who are willing to sit with us and co-create measures. Mm. And that's why in the Vitality Imperative, our last book, we said you can create measures that show that if you improve the quality and timing of conversation as a leader, you can produce more, better results with less time, money, and stress. And you can measure money. <laughs> you can measure time. And there are even ways to measure stress, even though most of those are subjective. You know, mm -hmm. people's report of stress tends to be whether or not they feel like they're contributing with the effort they're making. Mm -hmm. And if they're expending a lot of effort, but they don't see a whole lot of impact, reports of stress tend to go great up, go greatly up. And I, I just think that's important. We really are making a visible difference. Mm -hmm. The conversation is not abstract. It is in the moment real and either helping or hurting alignment, alignment action, and adjustment. Mm -hmm. I think this relationship between impact, Mickey, I don't know how you just said that, but impact and stress, right? I think, Emma Rose, goes back to your comment earlier around in the virtual world where people are feeling like they're having to do so much more work. I think it's that their meetings have in a lot of places become, uh, so ineffective that the impact of them is going right. down. So the hours are going up, but the impact is going down, which then has people feel ridiculously stressed all the time, right? Because I'm spending all this time, but am I actually seeing the fruit of that? Mm -hmm. Right. And so because those meetings are just, we're not clear about why are we meeting? What are we trying to accomplish? What is the result we're actually trying to move forward or accelerate or see? And again, even if that's that people feel better, okay, well, do we declare that at the start, right? What are we actually here to try to move forward in those conversations? And I think in this hybrid world, we skipped past a lot of that and we just jumped into the, we're all going to get on a zoom 
And then we get done and we have the, what did you say earlier? Like the meme about that. This is the meeting that could have been an email, yeah. right? <laughs> right? <laughs> over and over and over again. Right. And it, it, and it's exhausting it's to exhausting. people. Well, and then not to discredit too, that a lot of people, including ourselves recognize the value of creating time for just personal conversation without maybe a formal agenda, but there's still an express purpose to that. Like even yesterday we had a really lovely lunch that was really about us in an opportunity to be as a team back together. Many of us, it was focused on appreciating one another. And so we had a whole lunch about just connecting in that way, but there's an, a purpose for that as well. And even though some might call that one of the sort of soft sides of, of business, it's become increasingly recognized as critical to our ability to do great work together, I think. So I didn't want to get that, let that slide that it can sound so mechanical sometimes about you need to come with a, an express reason why you're meeting and, um, a way for getting that done and measures for how you're achieving it. But even the just personal connection is also one of those things that there could be a purpose for conversation. I think that's where the profound and practical coincide mm -hmm. because I give Examples from two different companies that I won't name either company within the last two days. Uh, one, I was with an executive team yesterday. And one of the comments that came up, they're debriefing an uh, annual assessment of employee engagement and satisfaction. And one of the things that was they were debriefing with their teams, the results, that one of the executives reported is that people that report to him wanted him to know, we can tell when all of you come out of some meeting where people told you that you're supposed to be nicer to us, can then you start thanking us for everything? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> and then that goes away in a little while. And, we, and you go back to normal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you it doesn't feel real. It, it feels like, oh, I remember I'm supposed to say, oh, love your hat. You know, that, <laughs> that you're supposed to say a nice thing. Uh -huh. And so for us, a word that has been trivialized and shouldn't be authenticity is really mm. important mm. because that's what makes accountability genuine. Right. That's where it is someone's personal desire to make a difference, not someone's mandated obligation to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And so things like the meeting you were talking about yesterday, that level of appreciation that was expressed there, that people experienced there, that infuses the work with the kind of meaning that actually supports authentic accountability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which probably means you don't have to have so many check-in meetings asking if somebody's going to be accountable to what they committed to doing. <laughs> As well, one example. obvious, but we've said over and over again because of observations that we've made that the greater the percentage of conversations that are truly authentic, the lower the supervision cost in the system. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that goes to the creation of meaningful work, right? The conversations actually have the c capacity to create meaningful work for folks. And so like, you know, yesterday out of that meeting, I'm thinking about what did people report at the end? Feeling seen, mm -hmm. feeling revitalized, re-energized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do I believe that that has commercial viability and application for us over the coming months? I do. Right. Right. So that is not just about like we all felt good leaving there, that I, that there's now a team of people that feel energized and seen for the contribution that they have to make here in this organization. Do I trust as I fly back to Virginia that I have, that there's a team here that are excited about leaning into that work? I, I do. Mm. Right. And so I don't like, was that a worthwhile investment of 90 minutes? I, uh, if, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Well, the, the second company example I have in the last two days that what the two of you are bringing up reminds me of is I was today on the phone with the chief people officer for an hour from another very large globally Quiet. known organization. <laughs> and she was talking about the incredible pressure in a certain segment of their business where people are coming in and offering ridiculous salaries mm. to steal talent. That right now there is this competition for talent that's Big, right? very aggressive. Yeah. And she said, I, so this is really an issue. And I told her that one of 
her peer executives mentioned to me, here's an example of they're going to pay this person $2 million to go do this. Whew. And he said, and we know. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. Everybody's <laughs> 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 just looked at the CEO and the CEO went, you're kidding yourself. I love you. <laughs> no chance. You, know, you make a really great contribution. <laughs> but that was his point that he was saying that I was reporting to the chief people officers. He was saying, there is no way that they can produce something that's going to earn that money back. And they'll find that out in two years from now after that experiment's over. And so we can't do that. And, but her concern was, she said, you know, but we have to confront something. We've done something in that area of the business and we have lots of data that shows it that says people are really unhappy. They're feeling like their contributions diminished. They feel like, there's been too much bureaucracy put around them and they don't have the freedom and autonomy to do their work, which makes them feel even more diminished. She said, I think what happens is they stay unhappy for a long enough period of time. And they didn't really leave for that money. They left because, you know what? All that money feels like somebody's going to pay for my suffering over the last <laughs> few right. years. No, I think yeah. that's true. That's and, right. Yeah. And I thought that was really insightful. Uh -huh. So she said, they wouldn't have been available to that conversation like that if we hadn't mm. put them through two years of suffering. And now they're glad somebody's going to write a check to them for that. Yeah. And I thought, wow. It, it's not that compensation doesn't matter. Of course it does. But the meaningful work, Robin, you were just referring to, the fact that people feel themselves in the work, mm -hmm. that it's their work, not an assignment to them, mm -hmm. that's a function of great conversation. Right. And something that becomes ordinarily great, not that we can tell you came out of a meeting where they told you to say something nice to us. <laughs> right. Well, and okay, so that that moves into a, another good question. Since we're all meant to be representing a few different generations here, I think it is a worthwhile conversation too. What do we mean by great work when we say great work? And how do each of us maybe define that differently based on our backgrounds and how we grew up in the working sphere? And how might that have evolved over the course of your career mm -hmm. for the two of you? Mm -hmm. Maybe let's start with the boomer. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, just an act of dignity to the old person. Uh, it's also chronological. So it's not <laughs> oh, that's right. So it's going to be me, then Robin, then uh -huh, you. Yeah, Got yeah. it. See, there is a design. Uh, well, this will just be whatever comes up. Um, I think over my 40 or 50, no, I guess 50 years at work, <laughs> the what great meant has has really evolved a lot. Uh, so in the beginning, it meant being paid enough that I could be independent. <laughs> and that's all it meant to me, you know, was I, that I actually could be on my own and be okay. Um, then when I found out, well, there's lots of different ways to do that. Then I think great became, am I good at it? You know, so when I went into the restaurant business, I really enjoyed and I was good at running a dining room, you know, just creating an environment of service and where people felt like, hey, this is the place I'm glad I'm at at the moment. And so I was in that field for a while. And I think part of it's because, yeah, I could be financially independent, but I could do something that I felt I could be proud of. Hey, you're, you're doing something you're pretty good at. Then it became something that I feel like is leaving things better than I found them. <laughs> and that's really what ended up, I mean, you can do that in the restaurant business, but I moved into communication and negotiation and, you know, all, cause it just looked like helping people turn their differences into intelligence, their conflicts into peace <laughs> That felt like something to be proud of. 
And then where that migrated was doing that in community. Because mm. in the beginning, I was like a solo <laughs> practitioner, and then it was a duo, me and Dr. Reinaschek. But then it became, so great meant we are all that stuff, mm-hmm. doing something that makes us financially viable, that we feel like we are doing something we're good at, and we are making a difference we're proud to make. And the the we part of it was, y'all have heard me say this, like, kid about it a lot is that we're never all stupid at the same time. There's intelligent safety net when mm-hmm. it's a community. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like it also has the stress go down, our resilience go up. Um, and so that, I, I didn't know how I was, what I was going to say, but that's what it means to me if it's great. Uh, I guess now at this stage, it's that I can tell whatever I have experienced as being great in the community of people, and not just in conversant, because we have clients we've been working with for 20 years, too, that are a member of our community, that I can tell that what we've done together, it's going to last beyond any of our individual careers. And that's what matters to me now. Mm-hmm. So the great work is the answer to the question, will this endure when the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's just what flowed out of me, Emma Rose. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's generational or not, but it's true for this person going through the last 50 years. What's, in, what's interesting to me, Mickey, in listening to you tell that story, knowing, of course, I was ra- so I was raised by, so I'm Gen X, was raised by boomers. Um, there's a part of your story that I don't hold, so I identify with, with many of the parts, but the very first one about... That great work was something that I could be independent based on was never actually in my thinking. And I think it was because that was not part of the generationally what what my what my generation was worried about when we came out of college as much. Right. Like there was it, it was a little it so came coming out of college in the early 90s, there was a little bit of trouble with getting jobs. But for the most part, there wasn't as much of that in the conversation about would we find would I would would great work be something that I would be paid for? It was was it was something that was productive. So there was an emphasis on like what was what was it producing? What was I sort of do what was the doing component, right? Was a big part of like my my identity. Most people know this because we say it a lot that I was an engineer when I first came. That's what my degree is in, that's the work I did. And so that was that was very important to me. Like that that sort of degree, that it was something that was produced, and I worked for in manufacturing, that it was producing something, right? That there was a problem to be solved, and I was there to, to help solve it. Like there was something about that that was very satisfying to me. A great day back then was I walked in and a piece of manufacturing equipment wasn't working, and I worked walked out and it was mm. right. Like that was you know because I could see that I could see the impact of that of having something that we all stood around and scratched our heads about all day and went oh it's this. Um. And so that was, so that's an interesting place about where sort of, I I think I started. And then, you know, in that work, I started to realize even in manufacturing, wait a minute, it takes a whole group of people to actually do this. And I got very interested in like, what did that, what did that look like? What did that mean around how do you get groups? Like, so how do you have groups of people actually come to do the work? And so I think somewhere in my 30s, it really transitioned to, okay, how, how do we do work together? Like, how do you bring the, the idea of design to how work is actually getting done became really where great work was done. Right. And so for but I also had children. And so then at that age, great work also meant like, did I have personal flexibility? Did I have personal? So there was a real, like, what was the personal satisfaction? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, it wasn't necessarily personal satisfaction in my work. It was how do I have personal satisfaction in my life where work is a component of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got to like, wait a minute, you actually can have those co- co- coexist. You can have personal satisfaction in your work, right? And that's where I've got really, I think, interested about like meaningful work. Like those two things actually can live together. Um, and I think today it's really around how do I help others 
find meaning and love and joy in their work, right? So for me, that's what what meaningful work looks like is how do, how do I personally, how do we help other people really find that, whether that's people here or our clients really see that you can, we spend, I always say it all the time, we spend too much damn time at work to not actually find meaning and joy while we're there. Mm. You just triggered something in me, Robin, where I realized there's something that I've so taken for granted, I wasn't being conscious of it. As I was listening to your journey, it occurred to me, I have not worked for anyone else since I was 24 years old. <laughs> and there's this, so part of great was autonomy. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me is I'm finding, even we work in all these complex systems all over the world, that I run into it over and over and over again, that people, when they bring up trust, I find out it's not saying, oh, it's not that I'm not trust my boss, it's I'm afraid my boss doesn't trust me. Mm. It's amazing how often when the word trust comes up and you just delve into it, that one of the things that I think great leadership, and this has to do with great conversation, how do you hand off via conversation? freedom Mm -hmm. so that somebody understands what's the basis of judgment that if we stand in that i'm autonomous and emrose you know you recently asked me to write a blog and we talked about autonomy ain't anarchy autonomy doesn't mean that you're just off by yourself doing whatever you want it means that you have got the information and the ethics necessary to make independent judgments that are sensitive to the needs of the system. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we work with leaders on is how do you hand off, how do you delegate in a way that you're handing off thinking, Mm -hmm. not just an assignment? So it's not just me. My way of dealing with that is I just never worked for anybody else. (laughs) 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 But what's funny is over this past, how long have you been the CEO now? Six months. Okay. And how long were you the president before that? A year. Okay. So let's say about the last year and a half. Yeah. Robin and I have been coping with, I am the founder. The co-founder, Richard Ryanshek's retired. He's no problem. (laughs) (laughs) He's gone. Uh, I'll saw him next week. I don't mean gone, gone, but he's not, he's not a problem for Robin. (laughs) (laughs) And Robin and I had to work out, well, what's the real transition? Because people wanted to know, really? And what's happened to that Conley dude? (laughs) And we really had a great conversation about that and worked out that the only areas in which I have any decisions, and they're very narrow, and they really have to do with major capital risk or opportunity. And other than that, it's Robin. And it's been fun because I've, you know, we had this meeting where some people are going, wow, it must have been so hard for you this last year with Robin taking over. No, I've actually had a great time. (laughs) Because the design of the conversation that you held with me has both of us be free. It's not that, oh, the source of my autonomy is I don't have to report to anybody. I actually report to you on 90% of what the hell I do now. But I still have that experience of freedom, of autonomy. Mm And it's not only because I don't have a boss, because now I do. (laughs) Well, and I I will say, and this is not that just saying a nice thing because somebody said I should say a nice thing to you. (laughs) (laughs) To clarify. To clarify. (laughs) Um, But for me, you know, going back to the trust, right, I think there's the big part of that is that I know you trust me. Mm. Yep. Right. So that's, that's the only reason that that works. If I had a shadow of a doubt that you didn't trust the decisions that I was making, I think this would not be working the way it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that you have entrusted me to make the decisions that I, that we think are best for the organization and for the future and where we're headed. And that you also trust that I have I take your your thoughts into account. So I don't make them without asking or talk, getting your thoughts on it. I may sometimes make a decision that's not the one you would make. <laughs> <laughs> and we have more than a few examples of that. Um, uh, and as we said yesterday in one of those, it was not the one that you would have made and you were happy with it anyway. So I, was. I, think- I actually really liked that. I really enjoyed that when we walked out of that meeting. 
And when I went in with a preference, Robin made a decision that did not coincide with my preference. But the conversation we had with the five people involved, I learned so much in it that by the end, I was really happy with it. And it's... Just to be clear, we walked out and he said, I didn't get anything I wanted in that meeting and I'm happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) So Emma Rose, what about, how does it look from your neck of the generational woods? Um, What is great? Yeah, what's great work? What's great work? Well, I think um, what's valuable to other people comes up for me. It was never, you know, it's something I might find valuable wouldn't really actually matter in the grand scheme of things if I made it happen. It really matters if it's mutually attractive, beneficial, helpful in some way. Um, I also think there's definitely that making a meaningful difference piece. Um, And I think struggling over things as well. I know, you know, we had our conversation with Juan um, recently which is another episode that either you have already heard or will hear soon, um, (laughs) where we talked about that joy is not absent of struggle. And I think that sometimes that, like you were talking about the team of engineers showing up to a problem and having to wrestle with it makes it so much more gratifying afterwards that Mm -hmm. you, you did that. So I think anytime I learn a new skill set, anytime I, really put effort into growing into a new domain. Mm. And then there's some value that comes out of that. That's beyond just me. It's valuable to others. I think that's great work to me when I was younger. I think I thought I had to change the world for it to be great work. And that got very overwhelming and a little daunting (laughs) and I uh, gave up on that one. Um, Well, I think the metric for change kind of got narrower and narrower and narrower. Mm. And now it's, it, it, then it became more of the interpersonal. If I can just impact the people around me in some way or add to what we're in together, that's enough, you know. Um, well, if yeah. we expand the statement, conversations are the work, mm-hmm. to conversations are the work of leadership. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, what's great leadership then? Uh, I think... I think great leadership invites people into whatever you're meant to be producing, creating, accomplishing together, like inviting a new perspective, inviting people to grow into whatever that challenge is and supporting them in doing that. I think increasingly now I'm not noticing too much of a generational difference amongst our responses, which is kind of cool. I also do think that, over the course of the last however many decades, there's been more individualism welcomed into whatever great work means, how that's defined for people. So I think that great leaders now make room for self-actualization for the individuals that they lead. So it's, it's yes, we're in something together, but then is there space for you to feel proud of yourself and what mm-hmm. you're contributing and find meaning in how you're showing up and how you're developing Um, because that might be different for different people. Not everybody wants to make the same difference. And so how can they still be in the same conversation, um, and, and doing the same, you know, contributing to the same goal together while still finding themselves in it. Um, I also think what you said about feeling safe is really important. Um, and there's a lot more conversation about that now about psychological safety, mental health, Um, even just the stress and burnout that's pretty widespread at the moment. Um, and I think that, you know, I was with a client earlier this week where it was expressed that people didn't feel safe. Mm. You know, we were in a conversation that was meant to be one of those sort of cone of silence conversations. Can everyone have an opportunity to let their sincere opinions emerge after having been in pretense, which is some of our lingo that you can go to our website, www.conversant.com if you want to learn more. (laughs) Um, But uh, when I said that about, can we all agree that this is a safe space for people to share? Somebody said, you know, we say that a lot and I don't believe it's true. I actually Mm. don't think that this company is a safe place for me to express that. 
And I thought, you know, that's actually really real. I'm not going to show up and say, well, everybody, okay, cone of silence. We're all going to make sure that we don't share this anywhere else. And I'm the outsider consultant coming in and saying that to a group of people that are actually living in the dynamics of the organization that they're in. Mm -hmm. And they're calling bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, and that's not a knock on that leader. It's a struggle I think everybody has to sort of work through Mm -hmm. in the dynamics of the people that they lead, but that trust and safety, I think, is a huge part of what makes for great leadership. And I do think that that's accomplished through conversation. Well, from what I understand about that interaction you're referring to, Mm -hmm. where you were the external consultant, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that you did have that person feel safe in the way you responded to them saying that. And that affected other people in that group. And they ended up saying things that they weren't going to say. Well, and I mean, even contributing to the topic of the conversation as we, I know we're going to have to wind down here soon, but um, that, that even those conversations where somebody's expressing, I don't feel safe, that's part of the work too. Because if, if people are feeling that way, not expressing it, it's at play regardless in how they're showing up and how they're interacting with everyone else. And so if there are leaders that can create a space for welcoming that feedback and then being great at being present to that person and that concern and figuring out a way forward together and hoping that you can build trust. Well, not just hoping, but working to build trust from that place, then you're going to be much better off from there. You said something earlier. So now I have a selfish question I want to ask you Uh (laughs) because you said, um, you know, great leaders create space for people to make the individual meaningful contribution they want to make. So what's the individual meaningful contribution you want to make as you from where you sit right now? Oh, boy. Oh, I feel like I've had so many hard questions this week. Like, <laughs> what was the other one? What's unique? We had a conversation as a company earlier this week about what do you think is uniquely you? And that was a tough one, too. Um, I think, well, I think helping this company and our community achieve the vision that we want to achieve. I think that's the part of creating value that's valuable to everybody, you know, that achieving something that might seem far out and maybe a little bit tough right now. Um, that would feel really amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because I care about the purpose of this company and what we do. So contributing to that. Um, and I think helping people have moments of insight and clarity, Mm. whether that's understanding what we do, since I am um, the marketing manager here, um, or understanding a little bit more about the situation that they're in, if I'm in my consultant role, or understanding more of where they can go to improve the situation that they're in, maybe just maybe help contribute to building more trust or... um, unlock a place they feel stuck. I think that's a big one, helping people feel unstuck. So I don't have a very essential answer for you, but (laughs) I would be surprised if I did. (laughs) Well, you said that we're headed towards wrapping up. Yeah. I'm going to say my uh, wrap-up comments. Please. And then the two of you say wise and insightful things that make people really happy that they spent this time with us, and then we'll be done. (laughs) Um, I, I think part of what's happened the older I get is the more I want to heal the rift between the practical demands of work and the whole question of people being deeply satisfied with their lives. Mm-hmm. And Robin, you alluded to something about that earlier, that maybe satisfaction is not an after-work activity. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, And so part of why conversations are the work really strikes me as important is because I think it's even in a bigger context, conversations are so fundamental to the nature of being human. And both of you know, because I shared it a week ago, something I hadn't looked at for a long time, back in 1985, reading a copy of Vanity Fair that I think I found on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) I read this passage from uh, somebody named Toby Wolf. 
that to me is why I think conversation matters. And what he said was language is our meeting place. It is the sea we live in. When I watched my children learning to talk, I had the sense that they were not so much learning language as being claimed by it, taken into its arms as if it were another parent. And so it is. In the arms of language, they join the family of being human. They learn what has gone before. They will learn what is left to be done. In language, they learn to laugh and to grieve, to be consoled in their grief and to console others. It is in language they will discover who they are. It is the common ground of our humanity. Well, if that's so, then it's the common ground of our work. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. That's a great way to close. Great way to close. I also, you know, as you were speaking, that something more essential, I think, came up for me as well. That I think I'd like to contribute to people being able to trust themselves more and live more in curiosity than judgment. Mm. And I think part of that is expressed in what you just said, an aspect of it, but that so much of that happens in conversation with others and as because others are a reflection of you. As Roger says, you can't find yourself by yourself. So <laughs> you need other people and conversation is the way to do that. Yeah. Well, I'd love for work not to be a four-letter word all the time, right? So that there really is joy and love and hope and possibility all wrapped into that one four-letter word. And the only way I know to do that is in the conversations with each other. Mm-hmm. So, and this has been a delight to be in this conversation with the two of you. So thank you. So fun. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by Guy Connolly. Original artwork is by Dana Buckingham and music is by a cast of characters. Special thanks to Conversant's extended community who inspire the continued evolution of our work and stand with us in our commitment to change leadership, business, and the world through conversation. You can learn more about Conversant at www.conversant.com. On Connection is created and produced by the members of Conversant. Awakening the world to the power and joy of authentic human connection, we set a new standard for leadership that produces meaningful, enduring impact. Until next time.